You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Thanks so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Well, friends, welcome this morning. My name is Spencer. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from John chapter 11. This is part five, I think, of a seven-week series we're on where we're looking through these seven things that Jesus says, these seven uh, statements, these seven promises uh, that he makes about himself. And each week we're looking at, at a different promise that he has. Um, all of these promises, these statements are found in the, the book of John. And uh, there are these seven practical ways, uh, seven practical promises of how Jesus can change your life today, which is why we're calling this series Jesus in the Present Tense, because Jesus can change your life um, today, uh, each one of these, these statements, these promises, follows a basic pattern. Jesus says, uh, I am, and he fills in the blank with a description of who he is. I am the, the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And we're looking at different ones, these, these descriptions. And, and Jesus uses this formula because he's, he's pulling on this uh, tradition in the Old Testament of how God has revealed his name to Moses and to the people of, of God as, as just simply as this, that God's name as revealed to Moses was I am who I am, uh, sometimes translated as Yahweh or Jehovah that you may have heard of like that, that this is the name of God, that, that God just is. Uh, God is reality. God is uh, truth. God is existence. And this is just who God is. And so when Jesus shows up and he begins to uh, describe himself with this, with this phrasing, he's pulling from this, uh, this Old Testament understanding of who God is. And he's trying to say to us, hey, let me, sh- let me show you who this God, what he's like and what this God can do in your life. And so these, these seven descriptions and, and uh, sayings we have of Jesus in the, in the Gospel of John, they reveal to us uh, the, the character, the nature of, of God, what he can do for us and in us and, and how it is that he changes our life. So today we are going to cover a ton of ground. And so we're just going to jump into this. John chapter 11, uh, we're going to start reading in verse 1 and we're going to read quite a bit today. So John chapter 11, verse 1, we're going to read the next one of these I am statements. It's going to come in a few verses, but we've got to set it up first. And here's what we read, John chapter 11. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary and Martha are major players in the New Testament. We read about them quite often. Um, Skip down to verse 3. Because Lazarus is sick, uh, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one uh, you love is sick. Your your best friend is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Of course you do, because that's what you do when you love people who, who are sick and they're asking you to come. So he stayed where he was for two more days. And, and the disciples and Jesus then have this conversation about, about whether they should go and when they should go. And there's this debate because uh, where they live in Bethany is close to Jerusalem, which is where Jesus' enemies are. And this is getting towards the later end of his ministry. And so should we go because there's all these enemies and what should we do here? And they stay for two more days and they debate this. But finally they, they go and, and here's what happens. Skipping down to verse 17. It says, on his arrival, let me read that differently. Um, When he finally got there, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So he waited. I don't know how long he had to travel to get there, but Lazarus has gone for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went went out to meet him, uh, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I really think what we should read this, you, you kind of need to do a hand gesture with that. Like, 
if you had been here, right, if you had come, like, like it's, why weren't you here? This is kind of thing. It's saying it to the, to the rhythm of the sentence. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then verse 22, she catches herself. She realizes, like, this isn't the best thing to say to Jesus. So he, she catches herself. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And I think we call that, that last sentence there what you call backhanded compliment. It's one of those things of like, I know you're powerful and you do all kinds of powerful things, but this is kind of your fault. Like you should have been here. And so Jesus, here's what he said. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. I know. I, I, I know what he's going to, I know what's going to happen. I know, I know how this is going to go. I know like all the kinds of things you say when people die, yada, yada, yada. I know how this goes. I know he's in a better place. This is the kind of things we say when people we love die or people around us die. I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know all the theology. And, and I, I feel like it doesn't say this in the Bible, but I feel like what Jesus must have done right here is he must have like caught her by the shoulders. And I don't know if they're one-on-one or in a group, but maybe pulled her aside and was like, looked her in the eye and said these next line because he's like, no, 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 Martha. This isn't, this isn't about theology here. When I say that your brother's going to rise again, I'm, I'm telling you there's more than this because here's what he said next. He said, no, 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 Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. I am this. I, I am the resurrection alive. It's not, it's not about theology here. We're not talking about doctrine and what we say we believe and affirm. He's like, no, no, no. Like me personally, I am the resurrection and the life. This is, this is who I am. This is, this is what I do. This is, this, is, this is what I'm all about is I am the resurrection and the life. This isn't just about abstract theology at this point. It's like, I, this, is, this is who I am. He goes on, he says, and the one who believes, uh, another way to say that word would be to, to say trust, um, because uh, this isn't, again, this isn't about what you think. This is about how you live and the application of, of how this shows up in your life. So the one who believes or trusts um, in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then comes a very important question. He just simply says, do you believe this? Do you, do you trust me? That I am personally standing here, I am the resurrection and life. Verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah or the Christ, the son of God who is to come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. So the teacher or the rabbi is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And then skipping a few more verses here, verse 32, it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, again, Lord, if, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you? You heal people all the time. You've walked on water. You fed 5,000 people. Why weren't you here? You could have changed this. And when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then comes the next verse, which is one of the most profound verses in the Bible. It's only two words. And it's one of those verses that um, is just, you just have to stop and, and reflect on. It's just such a powerful verse, but just very simply says this, that after all of that, just simply says that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And I got to be honest with you, this is one of those verses, it's profound, but it's, it's one of those verses that's difficult for me to wrap my mind around. That the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was the word at the beginning, spoke creation into existence, the one who knows how the story is going to end, who knows how human history is going to end, that he takes time to weep. That's such a, like a hard thing for me to grasp. And I, and I know as Christians, a lot of times when you've gone through grief, uh, Christians a lot of times feel this, 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 
maybe, I don't know, guilt sometimes for how we grieve because we think, oh, we, we have this hope for heaven and this hope for everlasting life. And, and it's almost as if sometimes we think that Christians aren't supposed to grieve. But then I look at Jesus here and Jesus is grieving. He's, he's weeping. It doesn't just say he's crying, right? Jesus doesn't have a lump in his throat and his eyes are misty. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is, is weeping, not just dabbing his eyes. He's weeping in grief just as everyone else is. And this is like a natural thing that Jesus goes through and, and is, is certainly a, a model for us that, that grief is, is part of this process. Even when we know how it ends, grief is still part of this process. Jesus wept. Keep reading here. Verse 36 it says, then the Jews said, uh, actually, I'm going to skip down to verse 38. Sorry. Jesus once more, um, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he's been there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, if you trust, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me, which is one of the greatest all-time prayers. Lord, I'm saying this for all of them, that they might believe, that they might hear, because they don't believe right now. I love that prayer. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I paused because there must have been an awkward silence after he said this. I mean, I'm sure it didn't happen just right away. There had to be some sort of awkward silence where people are looking on the ground thinking, what in the world is about to take place? But then verse 44 says, the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So here's the promise. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 11, I'm John chapter 11, verse 25, one more time. Jesus simply says, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. This is who I am. This is what I do. This is what I'm about. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And the one and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Now, as we've been going through this series, we've been making a, a common um, observation about all of these promises that Jesus makes. Uh, we've looked at so far, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And all of these promises, we made this common observation that shouldn't be foreign to you if you've been in any of these messages. And we've just simply noticed that when Jesus says these, um, these, these promises, he says these in the present tense, right? Not I was, not I will be, but I am whatever it is that we're looking at. And, and this one in particular, I am the resurrection and the life. This is a difficult one to, to wrap our minds around that Jesus um, is speaking this again in the present tense. Uh, I am, not I will be, not, not um, I was, but I, I am the resurrection and the life. Because for us, when we hear the word resurrection as Christians, uh, you know, our minds jump to two places. We either jump to what happened that Easter Sunday morning, early in the morning when the stone is rolled away and the women come and they see that Jesus is alive and they run to tell the disciples about what happened. And, and we have this celebration on Easter Sunday where we remember the thing that happened that changed human history. And so certainly we jump to, to that. We think about what happened with resurrection or we think about what 
will happen, the promise of the scripture that those who um, are in Christ are going to be raised with him and have new bodies and be resurrected in, in a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, and that we're going to live in the restoration of all things, and that we're going to have this, this life of, of rule of God where, where God is with us and he dwells with us as all was intended and created to be. And so we think about what will happen, we think about what happened, but Jesus is saying this in the present tense, that I am the resurrection today right now. Resurrection, you see, is not just a promise for, about what happened, and it's not just a promise about what will happen. It's also a promise about what is happening, the, the way that God works in our life right now, today, that what he can do for us is that he can bring new life into us right now, today. And that's hard to grasp, and yet this is a crystal clear, consistent message that we find in the Bible, that this resurrection life is for right now, not for then, not for what will be, but for today. For instance, uh, two verses. Let me read to you two, two places. Second Corinthians chapter five says this very, very clearly. Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation, listen to it, has come. Not is coming, is, has come. It's, like, it's here. The new creation ha has come. It's, it's right now. It's, it's here. It's available for you. The new creation. He says the old is gone and the new is here. It's the promise that the salvation that God brings to us, it, it's for right now, for today, that there's a promise of resurrection for today. Uh, in a similar way, a bit more verses, I'm going to read a few more verses here, but Ephesians chapter 2, which is one of those passages that you go to if you ever are explaining salvation to somebody. Ephesians 2 is a famous place, but it's all about how, how, how salvation is this resurrection life that Jesus is offering to you today, right now. Let me read to you some of these verses from Ephesians chapter 2 and just, just walk through this and hear how Paul, who writes this, is describing the, the present reality of resurrection that is available to Christians. Let me just read through some verses here. Ephesians 2 verse 1. He says, as for you, the you here, by the way, as he's writing this, is, is, is you. It's me. It's everybody. Like we're, we're all in this. Everyone who is, is a universal truth. As for you, everybody. You, again, finger pointing at like yourself, you, he says, were, listen to this word, dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. It's not just that you've committed sin. It's not just that you've done wrong things. It's that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. This is how he pictures life apart from Christ, is that you're, you're dead. Like there's a way of living where you are breathing and paying your bills and going through the motions of life, but you're not living into the reality that God wants you to live in. You're not living with the purpose that God wants you to live in. You're not living with the restored relationship that God wants you to live in. You're not living in the healing and the wholeness that God wants you to live in. And the biblical word for that is, is death. It's a kind of spiritual death because you're living apart from what God has for you. So it says, as for you, me, everyone, we're all in this. There's no one who's not in this. All of us, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. goes on, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, when you just identified yourself based on what the world said about you and lived according to the world's patterns. So when you lived in the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, talking about Satan, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, he says, all of us, again, you, me, everyone, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh. This is what it means to live a spiritual death is that you're just living for yourself, gratifying the cravings of, of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. He says, like the rest, we, all of us, you, me, everybody, this is why Christians can't be judgmental because we're in the same boat as everyone else. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, we could just read that like a hundred times and just be a good Sunday morning right there. Because of his great mercy, because of his great mercy, God who is rich in mercy, I love it, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, listen to these words, made us alive with Christ. We were dead to sin, but alive in Christ. This is the picture here. Dead because of we followed our own patterns, our own life, our own, our own uh, purposes in life, but we're alive when we find Christ. Dead when we're in sin, alive when we're in Christ. And when we were dead in transgressions, he says, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace, a gift that you have been saved. And he says, God raised us up. What do you think that's about? That's resurrection language. That God has raised us up. It's already happened because Jesus has died and, and, and been uh, risen for us. And so we now have been raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressing his kindness to us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. It's by grace that this has taken place um, through faith, through trust. And this is not from yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. This is what God has done for us. And I want you to catch the, the language of what we're talking about here, that we were dead and now we're alive. This is the reality of the person who's in Christ, that we were dead and now we're alive. We were dead because we were living for ourselves and now we're alive because we have found this new life that's in Jesus Christ. We've been raised up with him. And this is not something we are waiting for when we die and we get to go to heaven. This is something that is a present reality for followers of Jesus, new life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life today. Not I was, not I will be, but today that there is life available for you. Salvation, friends, it is not just that our sins are forgiven. Salvation is not just that we have hope for everlasting life. Salvation is also that we are beginning to experience this resurrection right now. That God's kingdom is coming into our life and that we are beginning to live new kinds of lives now. Uh, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist movement, uh, he said it like this. I want to read this quote to you. 1700s, understand this. It's old-fashioned. It's hard to wrap your mind around. But I love this quote. It is so uh, profoundly powerful as he describes this. But listen to how John Wesley describes this present uh, reality of this. He says, by salvation, here's his definition of salvation. By salvation, I mean not barely deliverance from hell. So it's not just about avoiding hell. That's not salvation. Or going to heaven. But listen, but a present deliverance from sin, a, a present deliverance from sin, a restoration of the soul to its primitive health. Like we're back to the way that God created us and wanted us to be, its original purity, a recovery of the divine nature, the renewal of our souls after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness, in justice, mercy, and truth. Like this is, this is what he's done. This is what he's doing for us is that there is a present reality of what he wants to do in us that is resurrection, that is new life, that is the, the life of God actually filling us and giving us the power to live in totally new ways, that this is what he does. We were dead and, and now we're alive um, in him. Now there's a word for what I'm describing this morning, um, a church word. We use this often in church, theological word, theologians will use this word and the word that we use to describe what I'm, what I'm trying to say this morning is, is this word here. Ready? It's, it's the word gospel. That's the word, gospel. Also good news. It's, the word means the same thing. What, what I'm describing here is, is just really simply the, the gospel, that the, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has come, that we might have new life, and that new life begins today. And I, and I say that point there because um, 
sometimes in church, church folks, like myself, I, I put myself in this bucket, uh, sometimes I, I start to use this word gospel in ways that's not necessarily consistent with what it actually is. And I start to confuse the word gospel with things that it's not actually is. And I start to use this word gospel in, in describing other things besides this good news announcement that there is new life available for us today in Jesus Christ. And so preachers um, like myself, I, I do this. I'm guilty of this. Um, preachers like myself, we love to talk about the, the difference that Jesus can make in your life and how if you follow Jesus, your life is going to be better, which I fully believe that. I mean, if you follow Jesus and apply his teachings to your life, your life is going to be better in a number of ways. Uh, you're going to have much better relationships if you follow Jesus and apply his teachings because you're going to practice things like forgiveness and humility and sacrifice, and that's going to make all kinds of difference in your relationships. Or if you follow Jesus, um, you're going to have uh, a much bigger purpose in life. You're not just going to live for your paycheck because you're going to understand that your purpose in life is bigger than, than what you accomplish or how much you earn or you've got a, a bigger purpose to your life. Or you're, you're going to not be defined by what people think about you and worry about all the insecurities that everyone else worries about because you're going to just worry mostly about what does God think about me and I'm a child of him and this, he's already spoken this about me. You're just going to be so much better in so many ways if you decide to follow Jesus. But let me be really clear about that. Um, I love to talk about that's what Jesus, these kind of things Jesus does for us and how it's better to follow Jesus, but I, I just want to be really clear. Those things are not the gospel. Those are the outcomes of the gospel, right? Those are the outcomes of what happens when we start to follow Jesus and what he's done for us, but those things are not the gospel. But sometimes we get those things confused, and I think we get those things confused because those things are easier to wrap our minds around than the gospel. It's easier to wrap my mind around, what is it that I need to do in order to be different, that's an easy thing for me to wrap my mind around. And I can think about it. Oh, I need to be more patient or I need to be more humble or I need to have more compassion or I need to forgive somebody. And all of those things may be true and that's what Jesus taught, but that's not the gospel. But that's where we start to go because it's easier to think in terms of what do I need to do in order for my life to be changed? One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, he has this great line to describe um, what this kind of thinking is. And he, he has this line, he describes it like this, that... When we start focusing on what we do instead of what God has already done, he calls that the quote unquote, the gospel of sin management. I love that phrase, the gospel of sin management. And the idea here is that it's easy for us to begin to think about all of the things that we need to change in our lives in order to follow Jesus more. And so we start to focus on those things and we begin to think that what Jesus is mostly concerned about in your life and my life is our sin. And that Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to give us strategies to learn how to sin less. I'm going to become more moral. I'm going to become more loving. And, and we start to think that when I start to follow Jesus, I'm going to start to sin less. And therefore, I'm going to be living in my a faith, a better faith. And this is, and this is what this means. I'm just going to start to, to sin less. And, and so we begin to judge our faith and to gauge our faith. Tell me if this doesn't sound true to you or to, to me. I do this all the time. But I begin to judge my faith based on things that I do, like, um, have I read my Bible? Have I been to church? Or, or, or bad things like, have I lost my temper? Or, or have I yelled at somebody? Or have I been uh, unforgiving? Or have I like done X, Y, or Z? Or we start to say things like, here's a great example of what gospel sin management looks like. We start to say things like, you know, good Christians, you know, fill in the blank. Or good Christians don't, and then you fill in the blank, and everyone has a different definition of what good Christians do or don't do, and then we judge each other based on our own definitions that are just ours, and this is, this is what it looks like. We, we are just thinking about what is it that I, like, I have to do. 
But I want you to hear the promise. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus did not say, I have come for you to sin less. I have come for you to be more moral. I have come for you to change your behavior. He didn't say, I am your self-help guru. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the power of God given to you for you to live a new life. I am the gift that's available for you. And so we don't judge our faith, engage our faith based on what have I done in order to, to live a faithful life. That's the wrong question altogether. In fact, if, if you ever say the words good Christians do or good Christians don't, you have immediately shown that you have no idea what the Christian message is actually about. Because the Christian message isn't about what we do or don't do. The Christian message is about new life that's found in Jesus Christ. This gift that he's offered to us that we can live differently. Um, one author, Ravi Zacharias, says this really, really well. I just love this quote. He says, um, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. You and I, we were dead in our sin and transgression. We were dead because we were living for ourselves. We were dead because we weren't concerned with the things of God. I didn't have his purpose in mind in our life. But when Jesus has come into our life, we're alive. And so this morning, you know, I've been fumbling along in this message because it's really difficult to describe the new life that Jesus offers you. And I, I struggled with this because I thought to myself, man, how do I possibly share with people how they live into this? And it'd be so easy if there were like three easy steps that I could just offer people. This is how you find resurrection life. This is you step one, step two, step three, and, and it would just be incredible. But that's not how this works. Because this, this isn't a formula that Jesus is giving us. This is, this is an invitation that he has for us for a new life that's found in him. And so this morning... Um, I don't have three easy steps, I'd love it if I did, that I could offer you to how you could live into this new life, but I, instead, I just want to give you an invitation, and I just want to point you to the one who is resurrection, and the one who is new life, and I want to remind you of his power, and I want to remind you of what he can do in you, and I want to remind you of how he wants to do this in you. And so this morning, I have an invitation for you. It's an invitation for new life that comes now. It's an invitation for the power of God that comes now. It's an invitation for transformation and change. It's an invitation for victory and joy. It's an invitation for peace. It's an invitation for satisfaction. It's an invitation to a relationship with God. And this invitation is for absolutely everyone. It's for you. It's for me. It's for those of us who have all kinds of certainty as well as for all of us who have all kinds of doubts. It's an invitation for us who have our lives together as well as an invitation for those who are just hanging on by a thread. It's an invitation for those who are joyful and for those who mourn. It's an invitation for absolutely everyone. Whether they're in the church or outside the church, this is an invitation for you, it's for me, it's for everyone. For those who are worn out, for those who are going through the motions, for those who are far from God or don't know their purpose, this is an invitation for you to discover and to find what you're looking for. And I can't give you three easy steps for that, but I can point you to the one who is resurrection. His name is Christ, his name is Jesus, and he wants to give you this gift of transformation and new life. Here's the question he asked to Martha, and I think it's the question he asks to you. Do you believe it? Do you trust this? Are you willing to open your life and your heart to what he can do in you? Let's pray. And so God, this morning, we celebrate resurrection it's hard to wrap our minds around this. It's so much easier to think about all the things that we need to do to change our lives. But the reality is that you've already offered us um, a gift of change, a gift of transformation, 
a gift of new life that begins to, to live within us. And so this morning, I, I want to um, just point us and remind us to look to you for this. For anyone here this morning who is living outside of a relationship with you, anyone here who's, who's far from you or maybe going through the motions or maybe stale in their faith or cold in their hearts towards you, may this morning be a chance for us to return to you with a simple prayer. Lord, would you fill my life? Would you change my heart? Would you forgive me my sin? Would you enter into my life and that we can celebrate this gift of life that you give to us through faith? So Lord, this morning, we thank you this isn't about what we do. This isn't about what we've done. This isn't about three easy steps that we can take, but rather there is a gift available to us. His name is Jesus and he is the resurrection and the life. So God, we wanna to look to you and receive what you have for us. We trust you, we believe you, and we wanna know you. In the name of Jesus, our savior, our rescuer, the resurrection himself, we pray. Amen. You've just listened to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening.